Now, turning please to Luke chapter 10, and we are following, remember, the final six months in the life of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to come to the final week in his life. We've followed him from his birth to his boyhood, from his boyhood to his manhood. We have seen him commence in his public ministry and move out with the gospel of the kingdom of God invading the territory of Satan, undoing the works of the devil and doing many mighty and wonderful works. We have seen him and who he is. Now we've turned into the last six months. We've noticed there that he has changed the program, as it were, as he moves to the climax of his work. For here now he's not going to merely undo the works of the devil in the sense of many miracles and sight for the blind and the casting out of demons, but he's going to deal with the devil himself. He's going to destroy him. He's going to break his power. He's going to give it a remedy for sin. And he's going to set the captives free. We noticed when he started his six months, the very beginning he made it clear that the program ahead was he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must die, He must rise again. Let me just say in passing there, the Lord Jesus never talks about his death without also including his resurrection. It's quite significant that. All right? Quite significant. He also tells them that's the program. He spells out the terms of discipleship. He makes it clear that you must deny yourself. You must take up the cross. You must follow him to be a true disciple. The program that lies ahead, suffering, shame, death, resurrection. The terms of discipleship, that is denying self, that is taking up the cross, that is following him. He repeats over and over and over in the last six months of his life. We notice how he then set, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was going to the place where his program would be finalized, where he would suffer, where he would be rejected, where he would be put to shame, and he would be slain, he would be crucified, and he would rise again. I want to, we found that he left Galilee, he went into Perea, and there in Perea for those six months as he prepared for the final entry into Jerusalem, He saw the fields were white under harvest. And as it were, he prepared the final campaign of ministry. And he sent the 70 out. And there was such a tremendous blessing. They came back full of joy. Now we're just going to pick out just little spots of what he said and what he did right up till the final time of the beginning of the last week of his life, which started with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We'll pick out the significant points so that you will see his purpose, his intention, his work is going to be done. God is going to be glorified. A people are going to be redeemed. Captives are going to be set free. And the power of sin and Satan are going to be ultimately and finally broken. So with that in mind, go to Luke chapter 10 where we left off last time. And what does it say here? In verse uh, 
17, the 70 return with joy. And the Lord reminds them of something and he says, don't just rejoice about what work you've done, what satanic power you've seen overthrown. Just rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. We've done that this morning. We've got a citizenship that's in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you realize that God knows the name of every person that's alive on earth at the present time? He knows the name of every person that was ever alive on earth at, the present, at, at any time. And out of that group, there are names written down over the centuries in the Lamb's book of life. Captives who've been set free from the power of sin. And we rejoice as God's people, if we are one of God's people, that heaven has a record of our citizenship. Your name is actually written there in the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of the Lamb. So he says, you rejoice, you rejoice in that. And then he turns and he says, I thank thee, this is verse 21, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. You see, you don't have this revelation of the joy of salvation and of redemption merely by trying to work it out in your own minds or use something of your own skills. It comes to people who have, like a baby, have that ability to truly trust and listen and obey. It's that which comes to the ability to believe and to receive. This is the work of God. This is the gift of God. This is what it means to have true faith. You say, oh, I can't believe. Well, man, get on your knees and ask God to give you faith to believe, to receive the blessings of what it means that your names are written in heaven because it, you won't get there merely by reasoning it all out and deciding who's the best God and who's the, the proper God and what's the evidence for a God and adding it all up and saying one and one makes two. Therefore, no, 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 it's a revelation. My Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you, he says to Peter, when Peter says clearly who he is. No, you didn't work this out, Peter, in your own brain. It's a revelation from God. And I tell you, friend, if you can't see your way for, to heaven and you can't see your way to Jesus Christ, you can't see your way to salvation, you can't see your way to getting your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I tell you what, cry out to God for mercy that he will give you the faith to believe, the faith to receive, don't go through your own mind using wisdom and prudence, you see, because it'll never get you there. Christ alone can reveal himself. My Father, he says, which is in heaven, has revealed it unto you. And he says, blessed, even so, Father, for so it seems good in thy sight. Now, I want you to get the next point, because this is, these are one of the key points, the key verses. He says, all things are delivered to me of my Father. Now notice we just, remember where we're at, we're just months away now from that final work. And he says, all things are delivered to me of my Father. That's the first thing. In John's Gospel in another place he says, that Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. 
And I will just read the rest of the verse to get the point. And no man knows who the Son is. You won't know who Jesus Christ is. Remember he said, uh, to be a disciple you have to know who I am. No man fully knows who the Lord Jesus is except the Father. And no one fully knows who God the Father is but the Son. And the person to whom the Son will reveal him. Now in the previous verse he was saying, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you're the one who's revealed them to babes. Now he says, God has given the whole plan and work of redemption into my hands so that it is I now who know the Father and is one with the Father and the Father knows me. I am the one who will now be revealing them, revealing who God is unto those who trust. Absolutely everything about salvation is now placed into the hands of this Christ, who in some four or five months' time will die and rise again. He has given all things into his hand. You see, he has now taken complete control. He has been given complete control of the program and plan of God. All the promises of the Old Testament, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, all the pictures of the Old Testament, and the very plans of God in an eternity past, the whole thing is given into his hands. The promises of God, Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, it is put into his hands to bruise the head of the serpent. Or the promises that have gone through the Old Testament or put into his hands to bring to fulfilment and fruition. The promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. All the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 53, things like that, triumphs, uh, prophecies of suffering, prophecies of redemption, prophecies of victory, prophecies of glory, prophecies of reigning, it's all been given into his hands. He is in full control. All the pictures that you've got through the Old Testament, the pictures in the law, in the sacrifices, and in the offerings, all those symbols are now put into his hands to be the very fulfillment of, in order that the reality of redemption can come to a sinful world. Prior to that, they were mere symbols he will now be the substance. And if that's not enough, all of the plans and purposes of God are now put into his hand to bring to finality, fulfilment, and a glorious, triumphant fulfilment. I want you to think about those plans. When in the mysteries of an eternity before time in the past, the Holy Trinity held conversation together. And in that conversation, God the Father, who is the originator of all things, he, as it were, proposed that plan whereby sinners could be saved, whereby creatures could know their God and enjoy him, glorifying him forever. And in that holy council chamber in an eternity past, 
in that as it were conversation beyond us coming from the very heart of a loving triune God God the Father proposed it and God the Son said I will go and I will do the work and God the Holy Spirit said I will enable and I will empower and I will effectuate the work that is to be done now all of that plan that Ephesians 1 tells us about before the foundation of the world it's all now into his hand read on he's in control now he's actually assuming that role of letting them know and he turned unto his disciples and he said blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see what's he saying I tell you what he says to them you are going to see something that is absolutely wonderful you are going to be the actual beholders of the sufferings of Christ and you will see the glory that will follow. I will be put to shame. I will be slain. I will die. But I will rise again and after the resurrection I will ascend up back where I was before. Blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see. You are seeing something that's absolutely wonderful. And I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, to hear the things which ye hear and have not heard them. Yes, the prophets, they predicted it. They talked about it. After they talked about it, they sat down, as it were, and looked at what they'd said and written, and they wondered what it could fully mean. That's what First Peter says in verse 8 and 9. The prophets who predicted it, right? and spake of the grace of God that would come to the people, they themselves wondered at what they read. And the kings who predicted it, like David, who talked so wonderfully of the coming Messiah, you know, he predicted it in its beauty, he sung of it in its glory, but he never actually saw it happen, did he? He waited for his greatest son, but he never actually saw it happen. And then even the angels, it says in First Peter, they desired to look into it. Now he says to these disciples, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you are going to see. Fellow Christian, we weren't there, were we? I saw thee not when thou didst come to this poor world of sin and shame. I stood not by the empty tomb. I saw not in the glory right. No, but blessed are those that have not seen, but have believed. And you see, that's what faith does. It just opens your eyes and you see what you couldn't see before. You actually see into an unseen world. You actually have light and revelation and understanding of what you never understood before. You see, those that were wise and prudent in this world cannot see it despite their abilities. And there's no other way but that revelation which comes in the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that in the world in which we're living. Look at the Look at how people see life and how crazy it is. Look at the decisions they make, the wise and the prudent, how absolutely foolish they are. You can hardly believe what's going on economically, internationally, financially, whatever you like to think. You just stand and stare at the foolishness of thinking. But you see, you leave God out of it and that's what you're left with is foolishness. That's what Romans 1 actually says, you know, it says, when a, when a nation, when a people, number one, say we won't have God in our knowledge, we take him out. Number two says we will pursue our passions 
to the fullest degree of our self-exaltation and enjoyment in perversion against God, well, he says, God says, you'll become foolish in your thinking. Foolish in your thinking. Vain in your imaginations. All your schemes will get you nowhere. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. I mean, there's chaos. Financial chaos in Great Britain. Suddenly you have to do something desperate. Wondering why Mr. Putin has got control of the gas in Europe and can do what he likes over there. Well, who was it gave it to him in the first place? A foolish decision made in the years gone by. We go on and on. We've got to solve our problems. We've got to have a new program, a new agenda, a turning of the corner. And we come up with another foolish decision. Foolish decision. It's hidden from the wise and prudent. But you know, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. That's what we had this morning. And we're just resting on the promises of God. We're leaning on the everlasting arms. We're underneath the shadow of an almighty God and under the covering of his wings. And we move on in this world, just as the Lord Jesus moved on with his program unchanging. All right? It's very, very beautiful. So there it is. Now you could go on through chapter 11 and you can go on through chapter 12. What you'll find if you were to read them yourself, you would find there that the Lord Jesus... (coughs) Is, continues his teaching, he continues warning, he continues the healing, and what he is continually doing is just moving on in the pathway of instructing the people of God in the kingdom of God. Now, meanwhile, what you find through that chapter is the enemies, you see, Satan, Satan's awake now, he, he, the, the final battle, the final battle. It goes to Calvary ultimately. You know, Calvary. On Calvary the battle is raging. Uh, we'll come to that later on. And what they are doing, they're circling around. If you just read in chapter 10 and, and verse 25, you, you'll see how it all begins there. Straight afterwards, they, a lawyer stands up and he wants to tempt him, you see. Oh yeah, I want to try him out on the law. Just find a flaw here in this man's theology. If you go to verse, chapter 11 and verse 29... They say, look, how about you show us a sign, you know? You better prove your credentials, as if he hadn't already proved them a thousand times over. But you see, don't know, they're just pushing in here. And in chapter 11 and verse 53 and verse 54, it gets even worse. As he was teaching them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to, basically to urge him, it says, to assail him or to interrogate him vehemently. What for? They want to provoke him to speak many things because they're lying in wait for him. You know, just think about that. You you ever seen the pictures of the lions on the hunt? They sort of just lower themselves down in the grass so they can't be seen. They're just waiting to spring. That's what you've got here. Lying in wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might be able to accuse him. So you see what's going on. He is teaching, the people are being blessed and listening, and at the same time the enemy is circling, just circling and circling, and he's looking for a point of attack. Right, now go to chapter 12. Because in chapter 12 the Lord Jesus does something, and again it's a most moving, passionate section of scripture where for a moment he just seems to burst forth and reveal to us the passion of his heart and the work which he is determined to do. This is what he says. He's looking right on. 
He's looking on and revealing his ultimate mission and the burden that lies on his heart. It's a, it's a moving section of scripture. And it says here, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I do if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptised with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Just picture this for a minute. As I read it, I could. there's, there's a passion in it. As I read it, I was reminded of the days back in secondary school when we used to study... Uh, Shakespeare's plays and at times in the whole play there would come a point where one voice was heard one actor as it were stood on the stage and gave what they called a soliloquy it was as though nobody else was around and that one person poured out what they were thinking or what they were feeling and oftentimes it was very moving and the, the actor on the stage would put all the passion into it. Well, the Lord Jesus isn't acting. This is real. And this is like one of those great soliloquies of Scripture. We'll find another one in a minute. And he says these words, which in the authorised version are a bit confusing, and you, you sometimes don't quite get the gist of what's being said. He says, number one, I am come to bring fire on the earth. And then it's, how I wish it were already kindled. That's what he's saying. I've come to bring a fire. I've, he has come to purge his threshing floor. He has come to bring a true Pentecost to a needy world. A time when with great power the word of God will be unleashed for all the peoples of the earth, everyone in their own language, understanding the wonderful things of God. When it would no longer be one nation with the one God and the one covenant. But and the fire would be unleashed with such burning passion and power. All peoples, all nations of the earth would be blessed in him. He says, that is what I've come for. To accomplish blessing and salvation for all of mankind after my death, my resurrection, and the consequence of my ascension, when I will send the Holy Ghost, as it were. And then he says, but... Ah, meanwhile, he said, before that, ah, before that. You could almost hear the change in the voice. I have a baptism to be baptised with. And it is, how am I burdened? How am I distressed? How am I bent over until it be accomplished? I must die before blessing can flow. And in that burst of passion... The desires of his own soul for a moment are revealed and his determination to go all the way to the cross and through that baptism that salvation might come and captives be set free. It's very beautiful to capture the person and thinking of the Lord Jesus in that. So now you turn over the pages and you go to chapter 13. Again he teaches and he warns. All right. He uses parables, tells them about repentance, tells them about the evil that will come while he is gone, and then something happens in verse 31. Right? 
And remember, as we're, we're tracing this all in the context of that great battle against sin and Satan, and we're seeing the way in which Satan is getting his emissaries together and they're lying in wait like those lions in the grass looking for an opportunity. And then they make a move in verse 31 of chapter 13. They make a move. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod is going to kill you. Now, just, just think about what's happening here. Actually, they're coming, they've had enough of him. They want him out of their territory. They want him shutting up, that's what they want. They want him to stop. The whole idea is that they're invoking the thought of fear here. Don't you know that your life's in the balance? That Herod, that ruthless ruler, who's got absolute authority, he's going to kill you, right? I mean, how foolish to think you could provoke fear in the heart of the saviour who had committed himself fully to the plans and purposes of God. But that was their attack. Fear, all right? It's an ancient, it's an ancient um, weapon of Satan. Always is, it still is. However, look at the response. It's an incredible response. He says to them, go and tell that fox. By the way, it's in the feminine there. It's actually go and tell that vixen, which is, which is a term of utter contempt. I don't think, I think I agree with one man who said he couldn't see a place in scripture where the Lord spoke more contemptuously of an individual. I mean, this is the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. This is the Herod that the Lord Jesus is actually going to meet in his final trial. And this is the Herod who, to whom the Lord Jesus said not one word. He wouldn't answer a question, wouldn't give him a shred of information, wouldn't give him one activity. Nothing. He held the man in supreme contempt because this man had gone past the grace of God completely. There comes a time, you know, when the Lord won't talk to you anymore. That's true. If you keep not listening and refusing and rebelling, all right, there'll come a time when he won't speak to you again. And Herod's a terrible story of that because at the last opportunity Herod had to meet the Lord, the Lord wouldn't even speak to him. The man had gone beyond the reach of his grace. And things like that, I don't make those boundaries. None of us understand, but it's true. Right, but I want you to look at that. Go ye and tell that vixen. Behold, I cast out devils. I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I will be, I shall be perfected. In other words, on that final culminating day, I will be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. I mean, basically he's saying, excuse me, Herod, you don't dictate this program. I am in control. This is the program of God, right? I will walk today, regardless of what you intend or think you'll do. I will walk tomorrow I will walk on the third day and I will be perfected. And as most of the other versions say, and I will be resurrected. I am in full control. Now please, never get fearful and think that the devil is in control. <laughs> Ever think that. It, you think it is sometimes in your own life. You think, well, where is the Lord? Oh, excuse me, he's in control. <laughs> it's not that he can't see you, as maybe you can't see him too well. 
but he never thinks Satan's in control and never think anything has been taken out of God's hands. Now, we did that very much this morning, didn't we? We rested in the hands of an almighty God and we joyed in the, the, the knowledge of an almighty God in the promises of God and the purposes of God in the covenants of God and in the Christ of God. You rest there. Never, whether it's in a personal level or in an international level, never think that the Lord is not in control. That's number one. Verse 33. And then verse 32. And then in verse 33 he says, Nevertheless, he repeats himself, but there's a slight difference here. I must walk today and tomorrow and the following day. See how he's stating his program clearly? For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. God has planned it. God has predicted it. And yes, I will die. Right? Now that's what that's saying. The verse before took you further. It says, I will be perfected or resurrected. This is like the two aspects in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerusalem, the enemies will slay him. God will be with him and he will do a mighty work and destroy him who had the power of death and he will rise again the third day, according to the scriptures. It's what the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Do you notice what he preached in the very first sermon that went to all the world? What did he say? He said, you took him and by wicked hands he was crucified and slain. That's the one side of it. But he said he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God was in total control. And this same Jesus, whom you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ. And what the Lord is doing here is even in answering this, this wretched Herod and this threat of fear, what does he do? He says, look, I'm in control. I'm sorry, he said. What's going to happen is that everything's going to be perfected. I will complete a perfect work. I will make a perfect sacrifice for sin. And there will be a perfect triumph and a perfect victory. And sinners such as you and I one day, fellow Christian, will be perfected like him in glory. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Not as he was, as a man humbled and subjected to the frailties of humanity, but glorified like we saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, shining the light from within in the splendor of a company of the redeemed, as we'll speak again of all that he's done for us and we'll recount the wonders of his love. That's what's here. He's going to be perfected. But then in verse 34, I just want to notice this again. I want you to notice how the feelings of the Lord Jesus were, were involved as he, as he talked about the, the baptism that he was to be baptized with, the fire that he would send on the earth. It's so beautiful to grasp the, the reality, the perfection of the emotions of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was, I was recently reading B.B. Warfield on a... He's written a whole section on the emotional life of the Lord Jesus and we'll touch some of this as we're moving through. There was a passion in that last outburst and now there's a real sorrow. There's a, there's a, a holy grief. There's, a, there's a, a pity. There's a pathos. Look, 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her brood, her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. That's a most moving picture. I don't know if you keep chickens. I don't know if you've seen a mother hen with her little chicks. And something will threaten. Maybe the shadow of a big bird goes over. And with one squeak, you know, they're gone. Into the mother, under the wings, under the feathers. You can't see them. They are safe. And he says, I felt, pardon me putting it this like they, like that mother hen. I would have covered you completely and protected you from all coming judgment. And you would not. Again, can I just say, don't be like Jerusalem and refuse the covering feathers, as it were, the outstretched wings of safety to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Was there a tear in his voice? Was there not a moving pathos in the judgment being pronounced desolate, absolutely empty? It's a terrible thing to have nothing. Verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There is no one who has seen Jesus in the sense what I mean is understood who he is and received him until they realised that he is the one who came in the name of the Lord. There's nothing accidental in what the Lord has done. It's absolutely deliberate. Satan is not in control. He does not put his hand upon the programme of God. All right. You can go through chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. It's the same idea. Now let me just mention here that none of the other Gospels give so much detail as to what the Lord did in the last six months as Luke does. The majority of what we're doing from chapter 14 through to 18, the majority, the great majority of it, nearly all of it, is um, actually only recorded in Luke. Just for the sake of you getting the structure, um, there is a bit missed out in Luke because while the Lord was down there in Perea, which we did about last week, and while he was you know, preaching to that needy people, he did go to Jerusalem twice. He went up for the Feast of Tabernacles and he went up for the Feast of the Dedication. Just brief visits. And I tell you, the hostility, I was reading them this morning, is terrible up in the Feast of the Dedication. You know, Jerusalem is seething with hate against the Lord Jesus. And he just did two brief visits up there. Now, John gives you that. Matthew and Mark don't give you the details. John gives you the details of that, all right? Luke doesn't. But what Luke does tell us, the other Gospels don't tell us. I mean, you, you just glance through yourself, chapter 14, and then you can glance through... And I tell you, there's wonderful, wonderful parables here. I mean, what, chapter 15, what's that? That's, that's the prodigal son, <laughs> That's the lost sheep and the lost son and the lost silver, isn't it? I mean, that, that's magnificent, the way that's written in there. Beautiful. Again, what's on his heart bursts forth because all the publicans and sinners are coming to hear him. 
He's kidding you. Can you not see the vision? That, that look, captives are going to be set free. That's what's going to happen. And they've come to hear him. And the Pharisees say, oh, 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 look at this man. He's eating with tax gatherers and sinners. I mean, if he was what he said he was, he wouldn't be doing those sorts of things. And the Lord just tells this lovely story about the lost son and the lost sheep, doesn't he? The lost silver. Do you know what he's saying to them? He's saying, listen, fellas, excuse me, you hard, bitter, unbelieving men. You wise and prudent. You don't feel like I feel. You look at the sinners and you say, Whoa, the great unwashed. We'll keep ourselves pure. I look at them, he said, and I feel like a shepherd that's lost a sheep. Like a woman that's lost a coin. And I feel like a father that's lost his son. That's how I feel about them. That's the clue to understanding the parables of Luke 15. Because you see, the great passion of his heart has already been revealed. He will go through that baptism of death. Why will he go through it? So that he can bring that fire to the earth and that purification from sin and the blessing of all mankind in the glorious gospel preached in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout all the years and generations until he comes again. So he goes through Luke 14, 15, 16, lots in Luke 16, the rich man in hell as well, right through to Luke 17, where he teaches about offences and he cleanses the leper and he tells you about a Samaritan, eh? one of those outsiders coming to give glory to God because he was, why? He'd been a captive that was set free. He teaches them about his second coming and he tells them about prayer and he lifts up the children and he blesses them and he tells them about a publican that went to the temple to pray and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the middle of it, the rich young ruler comes up and gets told the terms of discipleship. And so it goes on and then, verse 31. He does exactly what he's done before. He restates his purpose and program. This is what he says. And it's quite remarkable because what you've got here in these next uh, two, three verses is actually an outline of everything that's in the next part of the, the whole part of Luke right to the end of the book. In, in sequence. He took him unto him, the twelve, and he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Now you see, he keeps saying, remember he set his face steadfastly like a flint as the true servant of Jehovah to go to Jerusalem. Now I just mentioned in passing that in this period through this gospel section, the six months, five times he tells them we're going to Jerusalem. Oh, no, you're not. Herod's going to get you. No, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. But he actually states it five times. So unswerving in his journey and his commitment. We go to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Here it is again. He shall be delivered to the Gentiles. He shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spit on they shall scourge him that's a terrible thing then don't know if you really realize that the scourges were made of were long whips with several many strands of leather and in the leather strands in the whip were sharp pieces of bone and they flogged the victim flogged them the back would be lacerated so badly that it would expose the spine at times. 
And at times when the whip would hit and whip around from the back to the abdomen, it would rip the bowels open. Many a man died under scourging long before they got to crucifixion. Never underestimate the sufferings of Christ. The physical sufferings. Now there's more to it than that. We'll, we'll deal with that later. But that's just struck me as I read it. They shall scourge him. They shall put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. You never get him speaking of his death without the resurrection. And this is astounding. And they understood none of these things. Over and over, that's what you get. They just couldn't grasp it, could they? They thought, no, no, the Messiah's come to rule. He's come to reign. He's come to have victory. And the saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. I mean, part of me saying so, but we're a bit like them. You know, Christianity to us is a really happy holiday, isn't it? You know, it's a great way of life and it's been such a respectable existence. Uh, well, it's not quite like that. It means the death of yourself. It means you take up your cross and you follow and you have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. We'll deal with more with that later on. So he says, we shall go up to Jerusalem. He's going to go to that place. He's already wept over them. He's already said it's a city that slays those that are sent. He knows what they're like. He knows fully that they will crucify him and they will set him outside a city wall. Oh yes. His arrival when we get there and that triumphant entry is so different. You'll see it's not like Psalm 24 when King David anticipated the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem. What he said was, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's urging the city to open the gates wide and welcome him in. He says it a second time, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. But that city gave him no welcome from the rulers of the time and would shut its gate, not open them, and take him outside a city wall, and they would crucify him. He says, we go to Jerusalem. I have a baptism to be baptised with. Now, chapter 18 and verses 30, from that what we've just read, 35 on, if you want to take the notes, do it, because it might help you in your thinking. 35 to 19, verse 44, is the story of this going to, on that last journey. Right? Verses 19 to, chapter 19, verse 45... To 22 verse 54 is the fact that he's, you'll get the story of him being delivered to the Gentiles. It was incredible that they would use a Gentile nation and so their supposed system of judgment in order to get their end of their own Messiah. I mean, they, they really, really turned and went under the shadow of the Gentiles. It was climax when they said, we've got no king but Caesar. You shudder at that. Jews saying, we've no king but a Gentile despot. Now, put to shame in the crucifixion is chapter 22, verse 54 to 23, verse 25. They shall kill him, verse 23, 26 to 23, 56. He shall rise again, that 
is chapter 24. That all happened at Jerusalem. We begin, which we'll do next week with time gone, we begin at chapter 19, verse 28 to 40, where the Lord Jesus arrives at Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And in that week we will see how Satan prepares his forces to attack. We will see how hell and the powers of darkness take counsel together against the Christ and against God's anointed. We will see the activities and preparation of hell. At the same time, calmly moving on, in full control, we shall see the preparation of heaven. As the Lord Jesus, he too prepares a Passover. As the Lord Jesus in the upper room prepares his people for his departure. As he moves to the garden of Gethsemane and faces that unfathomable sea of sorrow which lies ahead of him. And in prayer and pouring out of his soul, he prepares himself for the agonies of Calvary. And finally, at Calvary, he dies. An atoning death for thee. And on the third day, he's resurrected, perfected forever. Glorified forever. The saviour of every sinner who will ever turn to him. May God bless us this morning. And may our meditation of him continue to be sweet and glorious. And in the week that lies before us until the Lord comes, or unless the Lord comes before, or until we gather together again, let's abide under the shadow of the Almighty and take refuge in the cover of his wings. And let us go forth in the strength of the Lord with a promise ringing in our ears, Lo, I am with you. All the days, even to the end of the age. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Our Father, we are blessed indeed to ponder and meditate upon this holy word of thine. It is so inadequate, our understanding. But we are so blessed when the Holy Spirit of God just reveals, takes of the things of Christ and reveals them unto us. And Lord, this morning we have been blessed. We've remembered the Lord. We've remembered the promises of God. We've remembered the fact that he never, never leaves us nor forsakes us. We've remembered the fact that he will keep his promise and he'll come back for us. And we've remembered the fact that God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. So part us in the joy of that, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessed portion in the days that lie ahead in his blessed name. Amen. Amen.